Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. And I want to get to Chris Ailman. He is the Chief Investment Officer for Calsters. I think one of the most important investors in the U.S. because um, this is the California State Teachers Retirement System. It's definitely not evil. It's <laughs> an investment fund that wants to not only make returns, but also do good. Uh, and it's great that they have Chris as a representative because he's such a good person. It's been so long, Chris, since I've talked to you. So I'm really excited to get your take on a number of things. The first of which is... Biden's infrastructure plan. I was talking to a former World Bank economist yesterday, Sadek Waba, who was saying um, pension fund plans like Calster's should really um, be helping to invest in infrastructure because this is a great way for you know teachers, firemen, police officers, kind of the salt of the earth of America to make returns. What do you think? Well, first, Matt, thank you for that kind introduction. And the, I would like to get together again again in Berlin. That was the last, last time. <laughs> uh, and I have to note from your conversation last time, I think it's just you that Germany wants to track when you move around. I'm not sure everybody <laughs> else that, has to fill out those cards. So, hey, we already do invest in infrastructure and in a big way. Uh, I'm long-term patient capital. You hit it on the head. I, I need a long-term stable return. Infrastructure provides that. Uh, but in the USA, infrastructure is primarily funded through municipal bonds. So it's, I always say it's built by, by municipal debt. The problem is governments don't maintain it. Um, a lot of our infrastructure in the U.S. is, is around the energy supply line, not drilling, but just moving energy. And then it's about solar and wind. Um, our international infrastructure is definitely linked to green energy. Um, and very successful. So I agree. Um, Biden's plan, though, is pretty pretty huge and all over the map. So it's tough to figure out exactly where private capital can fit in in owning some of that infrastructure. All right, Chris, we'd love to get your thoughts on the markets here. The You know, the bulls have certainly had their way here since those March lows of a year ago here. Uh, lots of fiscal stimulus, lots of, uh, uh, you know, the Fed backstopping this market. I guess I want to talk to a pro like yourself. Where is the risk in this market? What could go wrong because the bulls are really having their way here? You know, if you step back and, you know, you guys know I'm very long-term oriented. Uh, we have a 30-year investment horizon. But look back at the last, say, 15 months. In essence, the bulls are saying that a pandemic, a global pandemic, is good for global stocks and good for the economy. And obviously, that's nuts. It's what it's the Fed. It's just the Fed that the, the Fed flooded the market with money. Jamie Dimon thinks it's going to continue to be easy money. That comes at a price. You know, we have not faced the huge deficit that basically the government financed the economy for the last year and a half, pushed the market to an all-time high. That's artificial. It's got to be paid back at some point. Doesn't mean we're going to have a bear market in the next, say, uh, even 12 months, maybe. But everything is priced to perfection. Uh, a pandemic cannot be good for stocks. Yet that's what the lesson we've been taught. So 
I'm concerned that, that we're overpriced and that we're going to be choppy for a while. As long as the Fed keeps providing free money, we're going to be fine. But at some point, they are going to have to start to tighten back up. And, and even just like they did before after 08, where it's just moving back to about 3 4%, what's considered a normal interest rate, uh, would be enough to slow this market down a ton, which it probably deserves. P ratios are at too high of a level. Don't we have to pay the piper at some point, Chris? I mean, we've now put, I think, $5 trillion dollars of stimulus into the economy. Biden's got a $2.25 trillion plan out there, and we know there's part two coming. Plus, the Fed has, I mean, I don't know how many trillions in emergency measures since this started, like $12 trillion. We're looking at a balance sheet that um, continues to be inflated. Like, is it true that as long as we continue to pump, um, we're going to be fine? As long as we don't stop, it's going to be okay that the magic money tree is going to somehow save us? Well, Matt, you know, it, that sounds just like modern mon- uh, monetary <laughs> theory. That's, that's Bernie Sanders economics, which is the, the U.S. is still the country of choice. The, the dollar is the currency of choice for oil and all the major commodities. So we can just borrow money endlessly and, and never pay it back. I just don't believe that's true. Uh, I'm worried about not just future generations, but the recognition that, that this debt, and we've had some, was just a month ago that we had a couple of auctions that didn't go as well as people expected. So, But what, when, do the, what, when do the terminal. problems come, Chris? Or what, or, or what assets get, get hit first when the house of cards starts to fall? Well, I've been saying for a while, you got to pay attention to the bond market. That really is, I think, the, the barometer for the equity market. Uh, the equity market has a lot of sugar and stimulus in it right now because of that money and all the all the Robin Hood traders at home. But they're gonna we're all gonna have to go back to work. And I think that if bonds continue to back up right now, it's a nice you know reset. Uh, but that's what you got to focus on. And then it's going to be uh, equities will soften. Um, obviously, certain commodities have gone up through the roof, but they're going to fall back in their price range. Um, I would just be worried about not just U.S., but global equities uh, setting back and seeing a slower economy for a period. All right. Going back to work, Chris, what are you guys doing at Calsters? What's your plan? You know, I, I was just talking to, to Seema and the team. Uh, I'm basically telling my staff, let's, let's work remote uh, through the summer. Everybody plan on being back on Labor Day. Uh, that seems to be a common phrase, even though the, the economy is going to open up. This has been such a mental stress on everybody. You know, people need to take vacations. None of us have taken any vacations for a good year and a half. People need to get out, go somewhere, refresh, reset, and then come back. Uh, remote work is going to be with us, I think, for most industries forever. Uh, it's, but it's, I'm really concerned about that hybrid world. Instead of the best of both worlds of being internal and remote, I'm worried about it being the worst of both worlds, that, that meetings uh, are not convenient and not effective when you have people out and in trying to figure out whether somebody's online, off, or on yep. travel, or in the office. It's crazy. But we're going to work through it. I, it's, 22 is going to be a real trust transition year of trying to figure this all out. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, you're representative of you know a lot of managers out there trying to figure out what's best for their team, and we'll see how this plays out. Uh, Chris Ailman, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you. We look forward to seeing you in our New York offices soon. Chris Ailman, 
Chief Investment Officer for Calsters. They are the folks out in California managing the money for the teachers. Um, it is a go-to meeting if you're a sell-side analyst when you go out to California. you got to see the folks at Calsters. Now, um, I mentioned JT is going to like this story because, <laughs> you know, during the great financial crisis, he became uh, internationally renowned for opening his 401ks on air. And, you know, a lot of people got hit hard during the last couple of uh, recessions thrown out of the middle class in the u.s that's not as much of a concern i think in the recovery from covid but worldwide it is huge and in fact we have an amazing story on the terminal millions are tumbling out of the middle class in an historic setback and i don't just like this story because they said an historic which we always should it's not a historic setback okay we should treat the H as a vowel there. Um, I read the story and I thought, well, it's no big deal, right? We're going to bounce back next year or at least the year after everything will be fine. That's not the case. This is causing long-term damage that is changing a trend that hasn't changed for decades. And we're going to bring in right now, Sean Don and senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg to talk about it. He's part of the fantastic team that put this together. Sean, you know, I learned a ton reading this story. Um, First of all, that the middle class has been growing for decades since the 90s. And um, this last year was the first break of that trend we've seen. And it doesn't look like it's going to be repaired so quickly, right? Yeah, look, I mean, that's the the big question we have in in front of us. We've got this unwinding of a big idea that has governed business decisions and investment decisions uh, for decades now. That was this idea of, you know, remember the BRICS, uh, you know, Brazil, India, China, that these big emerging economies uh, that surged uh, onto the world scene in the last 30, 40 years. And they brought with them a whole new set of consumers, this enormous middle class uh, that has just been growing for the last 30 years. And last year, the pandemic uh, knocked that story uh, on its side. And we now have a middle class that has shrunk. And we also have, looking ahead, and the IMF has warned about this this week, really diverging paths in the global economy. We have the U.S. and other advanced economies likely to recover very strongly uh, from from the, the economic hit they took in the pandemic. And a lot of developing economies economies that are going to have a much slower path back. And who's that going to hurt? Well, that's going to hurt all of those people who had been hoping to, uh, as we all do, to to find uh, comfort and security in a middle class life. Well, and if I can be a little bit superficial here, multinational corporations that have relied on this burgeoning middle class as the main pillar of their growth strategy, right? Absolutely. This is this is, you know, 95 percent of the world's consumers live outside of the United States. That's a mantra we've heard from CEOs for a long time. It's what was behind the trade policies of the last uh, 30 years or so. And it's 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 really a big bet that 
corporate America, and not just corporate America, you know, big multinationals in Europe and Japan and, and, and elsewhere have made on these new rising economies and the, these new consumers. One of the guys we talked to uh, for this story is a guy called Ravi Sharma. He's a great example uh, in India of this middle class. He's been saving up for years to buy himself a $6,000 Maruti Alto. It's this entry-level car. It's made by a joint venture between Maruti, an Indian company, and Suzuki, uh, the Japanese maker. And you know what? Ravi last year lost his job. He had to move cities. He's got a a new job at lower pay. He's not going to be buying that car. Instead, he's going to be ferrying around his family on a motorcycle for the coming years. And he said to us, you know what? My life's been set back by three years and all of the dreams I had beforehand feel out of reach. What are those dreams? Those dreams are a lot of them are, are buying consumer goods. They're, they're buying things that big multinational companies make. Sean, what are some of the countries or regions of the world that are seeing the biggest uh, losses in their middle class? So we've, it's really been concentrated in two areas. India is such an enormous uh, population, 1.4 billion people, that the hit that we saw there meant that South Asia really led uh, the way in terms of the reduction of its middle class. But we've also seen uh, sub-Saharan Africa take a, take a big hit. And that's interesting because we know that the pandemic, the actual virus, hasn't hit Africa as hard as it has some other regions, and yet the economic consequences have been there in a, in a big way. I wonder if the rebound that we see, I mean, has anyone measured how long it's going to take an economy like that um, to, to come back? Or do we just not know if they're going to get vaccines out um, in, in terms of herd immunity? Yeah. So, look, I mean, vaccinations uh, is the big question, right? We know an economy mm-hmm. like Brazil is still dealing with a, a huge outbreak, uh, have not got their, their handle on that. Uh, they're, at a, they're on a very different path from the U.S. right now in terms of infections. Uh, and vaccinations and so on. The IMF kind of did the math, and it figures that largely as a result of the slower recovery in emerging economies, the global economy is going to be about 3% smaller in 2024. Our folks at Bloomberg Economics have also done some calculations. And you look at at a place like India, it's going to be 5% smaller than it would have been at the end of this year. Sean, we're going to have to leave it there, my friend. Sean Donnan. Senior Trade and Globalization Reporter, Bloomberg News, with a fascinating story here about the global middle class and the risk to that from this pandemic. Maybe it's just because I have a Bloomberg terminal sitting in front of me, but it just seems like the uh, deluge of information continues on a daily basis for investors to digest. And we have Fed Minutes uh, being released today at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. We've got a fiscal stimulus plan that Washington is debating. We've got earnings starting next week. There's never a shortage of data for the market to digest. But fortunately, our next guest can help us parse through all of that. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence. Also, former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. If that's not enough, she's also the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us, taking some time out. Talking about the Federal Reserve, we're going to get those minutes today. Anything we should be looking out for? I think you're going to see the word transient and transitory um, kind of extrapolated through thesaurus.com. You're going to see it, 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 it whack six ways to Sunday. They're going to emphasize and doubly emphasize their patience. Uh, there's never any such thing as coincidence with Fed surveys. 
There was a fresh Fed survey out today that shows that 25 percent of the stimulus checks uh, are, are being spent. The remainder is being used to pay down debts or saved. So the Fed's going to take note of this. They're going to take note of the fact that Bank of America, uh, Michelle Meyer, a good friend of mine, who I'm sure a guest on your show many times, uh, mm. she showed that the, the check recipients uh, spending peaked on day six. That would be March 23rd <laughs> is, when, is when recipient spending peaked after those direct deposit deposits hit their accounts on March the 17th. Uh, so we're going to see a monstrous retail sales figure in March. It's going to come down in April. It's going to come down in May. And by then, we'll be starting to talk about that September the 6th fiscal cliff and all these unemployment insurance benefits that will be expiring then. That's going to give the Fed pause and more reason to say, you know what, we've still got very high permanent unemployment. It's the same level as it was during the crisis. We're going to have to be patient here. And I think you'll see a lot of patient talk in those minutes today. So I think it was um, Novogratz on Bloomberg yesterday who was saying it'll be interesting to see if the Fed can stand pat um, through, you know, Jackson Hole next year. Of course, these inflation numbers are going to look transitory, but um, aren't we going to see the kind of growth that will push real inflation through 2022? You know, that's a big unknown at this point. Uh, we we just we, we can't say there are many unfilled job positions in this country. But right now, the vast majority of them are low paying positions. So in this coming month, you're going to see complete perversity in the data. If you don't get an 0.4 percent increase in average hourly earnings when we get the April labor report, you're going to see a negative print on year over year income that that makes your head well when you think of the base effects that, that are going to cause us to see for the next three months huge prints for consumer price index north of the feds the feds two percent target i think we have to keep in in mind fed thinking they're looking back at 2011 when cpi printed at three percent and back then they said it was transitory you know what cpi year over year by 2015 was 0.7 percent year over year so they're going to look back and pat themselves on the back and retrospect and say, we're not going to let the, the markets muscle us into a rate hike because we know what transient looks like from recent history. All right, Danielle, um, that's the Fed. Let's talk about fiscal stimulus. A lot of money has been thrown at this pandemic problem uh, by the U.S. government. You know, call me old school, but doesn't somebody have to pay for this? How should we think about that and is that a worry for you you are too young to be a fuddy-duddy <laughs> exactly oh no he's not gosh. you mean the bills, the, the bills actually come due is that what is that what shows up that's kind of what i'm asking yeah he's a dad it's, <laughs> it's in his nature if, if you're an individual if you're a corporation bills actually matter uh the assumption that the bills don't matter is is a very slippery slope just because we've gotten away with this for as long as we have doesn't mean that it's a perpetual environment that we're going to be in. You know, we ignore the fact that China is busily rolling out a central bank digital currency and looking towards life after the dollar. These are things that we want to wholly disregard, but we can't. And if there's another incident, if there's another disruption in the markets that prompts the Fed to move, Many are saying that it's going to go, it's going to force them to go in the direction of some kind of a digital currency to, to, to deliver money cool. directly to the people 
Think of Ben Bernanke, helicopter Ben. Legit helicopter. Uh, I still have that tie. I got a tie from, I think it was Van Eck, with uh, Ben Bernanke and Super Mario hanging out a helicopter, dropping um, buckets of money. And of course, it'd be cooler if it were digital. But I wonder, you know, Danielle, markets really don't care. I mean, everyone's still willing to lend money to the U.S. federal government with a debt to GDP ratio of like 130 right now. Um for 10 years at 1.6%. I mean, even with the gain in rates, even if we see that go to 2%, it still tells me people are willing to accept a nothing return, basically. Less than nothing, if you look at real yields. So they must feel comfortable. Investors must be totally complacent about trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in stimulus. Well, I, I, I think the complacency is more a game of chicken. They're like, wait a minute, this is nothing as mag- you know, nothing of, of the magnitude of the loss of reserve currency status is going to happen overnight. People know that, and they're banking on it, and they're banking on U.S. Treasuries being money good and being the, you know, the, the most attractive horse in the glue factory for multiple <laughs> years to come. And that's, that's kind of how investors see it as long as none of the wheels fall off, as, none as, there, as long as there's not a disruptive high rapid move in rates that makes the Nasdaq fall out of bed. You know, that episode is ancient history as far as investors are concerned with the Nasdaq pressing into all-time highs following the Dow and the S&P. All right, 30 seconds, Danielle. What's your biggest worry? My greatest concern is junk bond yields right now. They're at their lowest, uh, junk bond spreads, excuse me, they're at their lowest since June of 2007. So the, the, the rubber band has been stretched extremely tight, and we're not paying close enough attention to corporate America's balance sheets, which have not been repaired. Yeah, and so many investors that we talk to, um, that's one of their favorite investments right now, because they'll do anything for a return, right? Um, so junk bonds still look good. Um, and if you have a giant fund, they're willing to let you take massive leverage with their balance sheets right now. So um, it's it's pretty insane out there. Danielle, great to have you on the program. Always good to get your insight. Really important to us. Danielle DiMartino Booth is the CEO and director of Quill Intelligence, formerly an advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve. Tuna Amobi, he joins us, equity analyst for CFRA Research. And before we get into the cruise ships, um, Paul Sweeney says you're the best-dressed analyst. Yeah. So I never thought I would ask this of a guest, but what are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, guys, good morning to you. Um, you know, we, we try to, um, you know, do the best we can, uh, but I really appreciate those compliments uh, from, from my well, friend Well, Matt, Paul. see, the thing is here, Tuna's the only one I know that can give Tom Keene a run for his money in terms of wearing the bow tie. He sports a sporty ah. bow tie every time I see him out there on Wall Street in the trenches. Tuna, again, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about Carnival. They put out some really interesting guidance about bookings. People are going to go back on those cruise ships, aren't they? Yes, indeed, Paul. Um, as I was kind of uh, parsing through the comments on the on the earnings call today, um, there's definitely um, some excitement. Um, they clearly, pent up demand. The company said that uh, 2022 is actually pacing much higher than the um, wow. uh, pre-pandemic uh, 2019, which was an all-time record, both for uh, you know volumes of bookings uh, and also pricing trading significantly higher. But that being said, there have still been uh, some fits and starts in terms of when the CDC is actually going to um, allow things to get 
back to some semblance of, of normalcy, right? So Carnival um, said today that they are looking forward to the summer, um, kind of when they start to, um, you know, uh, sail again in the U.S. To, with limited capacity. They're already um, doing that in some parts of, over, of the world. But it's pretty clear to us, Paul, that there, there is going to be um, a, a major heavy lifting to come. You know, it's nev- not anywhere close close to business as as usual and we think mm. it could not it could take beyond 2023 for the industry um, as a whole to get back to anywhere uh, close to uh, to normalcy and remember the, the most of the cruise operators carnival included have significantly reduced their capacity carnival uh, divested 19 ships out of its 90 fleet um, but, and also but- uh, Liquidity is another thing we keep an eye on. I I have to wonder, do they not have a whole new consumer? Because, you know, um, like Paul has never been on a cruise. The only time I ever took a cruise was with my grandmother. So that tells you, (laughs) you know, what I expect of the clientele. On the other hand, once we get our vaccines, we're going to feel freaking invincible. Like, I will go to anything. I'm willing to try new stuff, including getting on a giant boat with hopefully not all old people, and then going around like drinking as much as I can. Like, are, are, are not a lot of new customers going to be, you know, happy to do this once they've gotten vaccinated? That's a great point, um, you know, Matt. I, I think there's a core um, uh, consumer out there. The, the core uh, customer for cruise lines are those people that are um, kind of repeat, um, you know, cruisers, if you will. And, and talking about myself, I had my first cruise last in 20, uh, 2019. Um, but I, I think, um, I think as I think about, was you know, it? yeah, well, yeah, frankly, I think it was, it was a very interesting experience, um, but not something I would personally rush to gotcha. rush back. We, we to. understand tuna. Yeah. Yeah. So the consumer is out there waiting to get out there. Um, and the company said uh, the vaccine is going to be a, a game changer. We agree just that a time in, is, is somewhat uh, sporadic in terms of when they can get back to, uh, to, to what should be a new normal. Tuna, what, what are the companies saying about their operating procedures? Are they going to change how a typical cruise goes? I mean, the buffets and crowding people into big rooms for dining events and other things indoors. How are they going to change going forward? It's a great question because the CDC has released this uh, voluminous, um, you know, things of what they might consider, you know, the protocols that cruise lines are going to be implementing. Uh, it's a bunch of things that no one really knows how, you know, that's going to go in terms of temperature checks and, you know, vaccine passports and, and things of that nature. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really a moving target at this point. And I, I think even the cruise lines themselves are wondering, but there's no question that it's going to create a very different dynamic for both the company and the customer. And as far as the, the financials, I think there's going to be additional costs um, in the business that's going to probably make the long-term business profile to be much riskier. Uh, that being said, I think the, the, the work, you know, the pen of demand is quite tremendous. And that's something that as we cycle through this, uh, you know, this year, which I think will be in a holding pattern, there's definitely some cost to be optimistic. All right, Tuna, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, we always go to Tuna for all things on the consumer side, including media. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.